Section 10 of The Naval Officer or Scenes in the Life and Adventures of Frank Mildmay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Asterix. The Naval Officer or Scenes in the Life and Adventures of Frank Mildmay by Captain Frederick Marriott chapter nine how happy could i be with either were t'other dear charmer away beggar's opera hell they say is paved with good intentions if so it has a much better pavement than it deserves for the trail of the serpent is over us all then why send to hell the greatest proof of our perfection before the fall and of weakness subsequent to it honest and sincere professions of amendment must carry with them to the throne of grace a strong recommendation even if we are again led astray by the allurements of sense and the snares of the world at least our tears of contrition and repentance our sorrow for the past and our firm resolves for the future must have given joy in heaven and consequently cannot have been converted into pavement for the infernal regions pleasure and pain in youth are for the most part transient impressions whether they arise from possession or loss of worldly enjoyment or from a sense of having done well or ill in our career the excitement though strong is not durable and thus it was with me I had not been more than four days on board the ship of the line in which I took my passage to England when I felt my spirits buoyant and my levity almost amounting to delirium. The hours of reflection were at first shortened and then dismissed entirely. The general mirth of my new shipmates at the thoughts of once more revisiting their dear native land, the anticipation of indulging in the sensual worship of Bacchus and Venus, the constant source of discourse among the midshipmen, the loud and senseless applause bestowed on the coarsest ribaldry, these all had their share in destroying that religious frame of mind in which I had parted with my first captain, and seemed to awaken me to a sense of the folly I had been guilty of in quitting a ship where i was not only at the head of my mess but in a fair way for promotion i considered that i had acted the part of a madman and had again begun to renew my career of sin and of folly a little and but a little sobered by the recent event we arrived in england after the usual passage from the rock i consented to pass two days at portsmouth with my new companions to revisit our old haunts and to commit those excesses which fools and knaves applauded and partook of at my expense leaving me full leisure to repent after we separated i however did muster resolution enough to pack my trunk and after an extravagant supper at the fountain retired to bed intoxicated and the next morning with an aching head threw myself into the coach and drove off for london a day of much hilarity is generally succeeded by one of depression this is fair and natural we draw too largely on our stock and squander our enjoyment like our money 
leaving us the next day with low spirits and a lower purse a stupid dejection succeeded the boisterous mirth of the overnight i slumbered in a corner of the coach till about one o'clock when we reached godalming where i alighted took a slight refreshment and resumed my seat as we drove along i had more leisure and was in a fitter frame of mind to review my past conduct since i had quitted my ship at gibraltar my self-examination as usual produced no satisfactory results i perceived that the example of bad company had swept away every trace of good resolution which i had made on the death of my mother i saw with grief that i had no dependence on myself i had forgotten all my good intentions and the firm vows of amendment with which i had bound myself and had yielded to the first temptation which came in my way in vain did i call up every black and threatening cloud of domestic sorrow which was to meet me on my return home the dreadful vacuum occasioned by my mother's death the grief of my father my brother and my sisters in deep mourning and the couch on which i had left the best of parents when i turned away my thoughtless head from her in the anguish of her grief i renewed my promise of amendment and felt some secret consolation in doing so when i arrived at my father's door the servant who let me in greeted me with a loud and hearty welcome i ran into the drawing-room where i found that my brother and sisters had a party of children to spend the evening with them they were dancing to the music of a piano played on by my aunt while my father sat in his armchair in high good humour this was a very different scene from what i had expected i was prepared for a sentimental and affecting meeting and my feelings were all worked up to their full bearing for the occasion judge then of the sudden revulsion in my mind when i found mirth and good humour where i expected tears and lamentations it had escaped my recollection that although the death of my mother was an event new to me it had happened six months before i had heard of it and consequently with them grief had given way to time i was astonished at their apparent want of feeling while they gazed with surprise at the sight of me and the symbols of woe displayed in my equipment my father welcomed me with surprise asked where my ship was and what had brought her home the fact was that in my sudden determination to return to england i had spared myself the trouble of writing to make known my intentions and indeed if i had written i should have arrived as soon as my letter unless which i ought to have done i had written on my arrival at portsmouth instead of throwing away my time in the very worst species of dissipation unable therefore in the presence of many witnesses to give my father that explanation which he had a right to expect i suffered greatly for a time in his opinion he very naturally supposed that some disgraceful conduct on my part was the cause of my sudden return his brow became clouded and his mind seemed occupied with deep reflection this behaviour of my father together with the continued noisy mirth of my brother and sisters gave me considerable pain i felt as if in the sad news of my mother's death i had overacted my part in the feeling i had shown and the sacrifice i had made in quitting my ship 
on explaining to my father in private the motives of my conduct i was not successful he could not believe that my mother's death was the sole cause of my return to england i stood many firm and angry interrogations as to the possible good which could accrue to me by quitting my ship i showed him the captain's handsome certificate which only mortified him the more in vain did i plead my excess of feeling he replied with an argument that i feel to have been unanswerable that i had quitted my ship when on the very pinnacle of favour and in the road to fortune and what said he is to become of the navy and the country if every officer is to return home when he receives the news of the death of a relation in proportion as my father's arguments carried conviction they did away at the same time all the good impressions of my mother's dying injunction if her death was a matter of so little importance her last words were equally so and from that moment i ceased to think of either my father's treatment of me was now very different from what it had ever been during my mother's lifetime my requests were harshly refused and i was lectured more as a child than as a lad of eighteen who had seen much of the world coldness on his part was met by a spirit of resistance on mine pride came into my assistance a dispute arose one evening at the finale of which i gave him to understand that if i could not live quietly under his roof i would quit it he calmly recommended me to do so little supposing that i should have taken his advice i left the room banging the door after me packed up a few changes of linen and took my departure unperceived by any one with my bundle on my shoulder and about sixteen shillings in my pocket here was a great mismanagement on the part of my father and still greater on mine he was anxious to get me afloat again and i had no sort of objection to going but his impatience and my pride spoiled all reflection soon came to me but came too late night was fast approaching i had no house over my head and my exchequer was in no very flourishing condition i had walked six miles from my father's house when i began to tire it became dark and i had no fixed plan a gentleman's carriage came by i took up a position in the rear of it and had ridden four miles when as the carriage was slowly dragging up a hill i was discovered by the parties inside and the postillion who had dismounted and been informed of it saluted me with two or three smart cuts of his whip intimating that i was of no use but rather an encumbrance which could be dispensed with my readers know that i had long since adopted the motto of our northern neighbours nemo me etc so waiting very quietly till the driver had mounted his horses at the top of the hill that he might be more at my mercy i discharged a stone at his head which caused him to vacate his seat and fall under his horse's belly the animals frightened at his fall turned short round to the right or they would have gone over him and ran furiously down the hill the post-boy recovering his legs followed his horses without bestowing a thought on the author of the mischief and i made all the haste i could in the opposite direction perfectly indifferent as to the fate of the parties inside of the carriage 
for I still smarted with the blows I had received. "'Fools and unkind!' muttered I, looking back, as they disappeared at the bottom of the hill, with frightful velocity. "'You are rightly served. I was a trespasser, tis true, but a civil request would have had all the effect you required, that of inducing me to get down. But a whip to me?' and with my blood still boiling at the recollection, I hastily pursued my journey. In a few minutes I reached the little town of Blank, the lights of which were visible at the time the horses had turned down the hill and run away. Entering the first inn I came to, I found the large room below occupied by a set of strolling players, who had just returned from a successful performance of Romeo and Juliet and from the excitement among them it was easy to perceive that their success had been fully equal to their expectations they were fourteen in number seated round a table not indifferently covered with the good things of this life they were clad in theatrical costume which with the rapid circulation of the bottle gave the whole scene an air of romantic freedom calculated to interest the mind of a thoughtless half-pay midshipman being hungry after my walk, I determined to join the party at supper, which, being a table d'hôte, was easily effected. One of the actresses, a sweet little well-proportioned creature with large black eyes, was receiving with apparent indifference the compliments of the better sort of bumpkins and young farmers of the neighbourhood. In her momentary and occasional smiles, she discovered a beautiful set of small white teeth but when she resumed her pensive attitude i was sensible of an enchanting air of melancholy which deeply interested me in favour of this poor girl who was evidently in a lower situation in life than that for which she had been educated the person who sat nearest to her vacated his seat as soon as he found his attentions were thrown away i instantly took possession of the place and observing the greatest respect entered at once into conversation with her whether she was pleased with my address and language as being superior to what she was usually compelled to listen to or whether she was flattered by my assiduous attention i know not but she gradually unbent and became more animated showing great natural talent and a highly cultivated mind so that i was every moment more astonished to find her in such a situation our conversation had lasted a considerable time, and I had just made a remark to which she had not replied, apparently struggling with concealed emotion, when we were interrupted by a carriage driving up to the door, and cries of help, help. I instantly quitted the side of my new acquaintance, and flew to answer the signal of distress. A gentleman in the carriage was supporting a young lady in his arms, to all appearance lifeless, with my assistance she was speedily removed into the house and conveyed to a bedroom a surgeon was sent for but none was to be had the only practitioner of the town being at that moment gone to attend one of those cases which according to mr malthus are much too frequent for the good of the country i discovered that the carriage had been overturned and that the young lady had been insensible ever since there was no time to be lost I knew that immediate bleeding was absolutely necessary. 
I had acquired thus much of surgical knowledge in the course of my professional duties. I stated my opinion to the gentleman, and, although my practice had been very slight, offered my services to perform the operation. This offer was accepted with thanks by the grateful father, for such I found he was. With my sharp penknife, I opened a vein in one of the whitest arms I ever beheld. After a few moments chafing, the blood flowed more freely. The pulse indicated returning animation. A pair of large blue eyes opened suddenly upon me like a masked battery, and so alarmingly susceptible was I of the tender passion that I quite forgot the little actress whom I had left at the supper-table, and who, a few minutes before, had occupied my whole thoughts and attention. Having succeeded in restoring the fair patient to consciousness, I prescribed a warm bed, some tea, and careful watching. My orders were punctually obeyed. I then quitted the apartment of my patient, and began to ruminate over the hurried and singular events of the day. I had scarcely had time to decide in my own mind on the respective merits of my two rival beauties when the surgeon arrived, and, being ushered into the sick-room, declared that the patient had been treated with skill, and that in all probability she owed her life to my presence of mind. "'But give me leave to ask,' said the doctor, addressing the father, "'how the accident happened.' The gentleman replied that a scoundrel had got up behind the carriage, had been flogged off by the postillion, and in revenge had thrown a stone, which knocked the driver off his horse. They took fright, turned round, and ran away down the hill towards their own stables, and, after running five miles, upset the carriage against a post.' by which accident said he my poor daughter was nearly killed what a villain said the doctor villain indeed echoed i and so i felt i was i turned sick at the thought of what my ungoverned passion had done and my regret was not a little increased by the charms of my lovely victim but i soon recovered from the shock particularly when i saw that no suspicion attached to me I therefore received the praises of the father and the doctor with a becoming modest diffidence, and with a hearty shake of the hand from the grateful parent, was wished a good night, and retired to my bed. As I stood before the looking-glass, laying my watch and exhausted purse on the dressing-table, and leisurely untying my cravat, I could not forbear a glance of approbation at what I thought a very handsome and a very impudent face. I soliloquized on the events of the day, and, as usual, found the summing up very much against me. "'This, then, sir,' said I, "'is your road to repentance and reform. You insult your father, quit his house, get up like a vagabond behind a gentleman's carriage, are flogged off, break the ribs of an honest man who has a wife and family to support out of his hard earnings.' are the occasion of a carriage being overturned and very nearly caused the death of an amiable girl and all this mischief in the short space of six hours not to say a word of your intentions towards the little actress which i presume are none of the most honourable where is all this to end at the gallows said i in reply to myself the more probably too as my finances have no means of improvement except by a miracle or highway robbery i am in love with two girls and have only two clean shirts 
consequently there is no proportion between the demand and the supply with this medley of reflections i fell asleep i was awoke early by the swallows twittering at the windows and the first question which was agitated in my brain was what account i should give of myself to the father of the young lady when interrogated by him as i most certainly should be i had my choice between truth and falsehood the latter such is the force of habit i think carried it hollow but i determined to leave that point to the spur of the moment and act according to circumstances my meditations were interrupted by the chambermaid who tapping at my door said she came to tell me that the gentleman that belonged to the young lady that i was so kind to was waiting breakfast for me the thought of sitting at table with the dear creature whose brains i had so nearly spilled upon the road the night before quite overcame me and leaving the fabric of my history to chance or to inspiration i darted from my bedroom to the parlour where the stranger awaited me he received me with great cordiality again expressed his obligations and informed me that his name was somerville of blank i had some faint recollection of having heard the name mentioned by my father and was endeavouring to recall to mind on what occasion when mr somerville interrupted me by saying that he hoped he should have the pleasure of knowing the name of the young gentleman who had conferred such an obligation upon him i answered that my name was mildmay for i had no time to tell a lie i should be happy to think said he that you were the son of my old friend and schoolfellow mr mildmay of blank but that cannot well be said he for he had only two sons one at college the other as brave a sailor as ever lived and now in the mediterranean but perhaps you are some relation of his he had just concluded this speech and before i had time to reply to it the door opened and miss somerville entered we have all heard a great deal about love at first sight but i contend that the man who would not at the very first glimpse of emily somerville have fallen desperately in love with her could have had neither heart nor soul if i thought her lovely when she lay in a state of insensibility what did i think of her when her form had assumed its wonted animation and her cheeks their natural colour to describe a perfect beauty never was my forte i can only say that miss somerville as far as i am a judge united in her person all the component parts of the finest specimen of her sex in england and these were joined in such harmony by the skilful hand of nature that i was ready to kneel down and adore her as she extended her white hand to me and thanked me for my kindness i was so taken aback with the sudden appearance and address of this beautiful vision that i knew not what to say i stammered out something but have no recollection whether it was french or english i lost my presence of mind and the blushes of conscious guilt on my face at that moment might have been mistaken for those of unsophisticated innocence that these external demonstrations are often confounded and that such was the case on the present occasion there can be no doubt my embarrassment was ascribed to that modesty ever attendant on real worth it has been said that true merit blushes at being discovered but i have lived to see merit that could not blush and the want of it that could while the latter has marched off with all the honours due to the former 
the blush that burned on my cheek at that moment would have gone far to have condemned a criminal at the old bailey but in the countenance of a handsome young man was received as the unfailing marks of a pure ingenuous soul i had been too long at school to be ashamed of wearing laurels i had never won and having often received a flogging which i did not deserve i thought myself equally well entitled to any advantages which the chances of war might throw in my way so having set my tender conscience at rest i sat myself down between my new mistress and her father and made a most delightful breakfast miss somerville although declared out of danger by the doctor was still languid but able to continue her journey and as they had not many miles further to go mr somerville proposed a delay of an hour or two breakfast ended he quitted the room to arrange for their departure and i found myself tete-a-tete with the young lady during this short absence i found that she was an only daughter and that her mother was dead she again introduced the subject of my family name and i found also that before mrs somerville's death my father had been on terms of great intimacy with emily's parents i had not replied to mr somerville's question a similar one was now asked by his daughter and so closely was i interrogated by her coral lips and searching blue eyes that i could not tell a lie it would have been a horrid aggravation of guilt so i honestly owned that i was the son of her father's friend mr mildmay good heaven said she why had you not told my father so because i must have said a great deal more besides added i making her my confidant i am the midshipman whom mr somerville supposes to be in the mediterranean and i ran away from my father's house last night although i was as concise as possible in my story i had not finished before mr somerville came in oh papa said his daughter this young gentleman is frank mildmay after all i gave her a reproachful glance for having betrayed my secret her father was astonished she looked confused and so did i nothing now remained for me but an open and candid confession taking especial care however to conceal the part i had acted in throwing the stone mr somerville reproved me very sharply which i thought was taking a great liberty but he softened it down by adding if you knew how dear the interests of your family are to me you would not be surprised at my assuming the tone of a parent i looked at emily and pocketed the affront and frank pursued he when i tell you that although the distance between your father's property and mine has in some measure interrupted our long intimacy i have been watching your career in the service with interest you will perhaps take my advice and return home do not let me have to regret that one to whom i am under such obligations should be too proud to acknowledge a fault i admire a high spirit in a good cause but towards a parent it can never be justified it may be unpleasant to you but i will prepare the way by writing to your father and do you stay here till you hear from me i should wish for the pleasure of your company at blank hall but your father has prior claims and i hardly need tell you that once restored and reconciled to him i expect as long a visit as you can afford to pay me think on what i have said and in the meantime as i dare say your finances are not very flourishing thinks i you are a witch 
allow me to leave this ten-pound note in your hands this part of his request was much more readily complied with than the other he left the room as he said to pay the bill but i believe it was to give his fair daughter an opportunity of trying the effect of her eloquence on my proud spirit which gave no great promise of concession a few minutes with her did more than both the fathers could have effected the most powerful motive to submission being the certainty that i could not visit at her father's house until a reconciliation had taken place between me and mine i therefore told her that at her solicitation i would submit to any liberal terms this being agreed to her father observed that the carriage was at the door shook hands with me and led his lovely daughter away whose last nod and parting look confirmed all my good resolutions reader whatever you may think of the trifling incidents of the last twenty-four hours you will find that they involved consequences of vast importance to the writer of this memoir pride induced me to quit my father's house revenge stimulated me to an act which brought the heroine of this story on the stage for such will emily somerville prove to be but alas by what fatal infatuation was mr somerville induced to leave me my own master at an inn with ten pounds in my pocket instead of taking me with him to his own residence and keeping me till he had heard from my father the wisest men often err in points which at first appear of trivial importance but which prove in the sequel to have been fraught with evil left to myself i ruminated for some time on what had occurred and the beautiful emily somerville having vanished from my sight i recollected the little fascinating actress from whom i had so suddenly parted on the preceding night still i must say that i was so much occupied with the charms of her successor that i sought the society of the youthful melpomene more with a view to beguile the time than for any serious prepossession i found her in the large room where they were all assembled she received me as a friend and evinced a partiality which flattered my vanity in three days i received a letter from mr somerville enclosing one from my father whose only request was that i would return home and meet him as if nothing unpleasant had occurred this i determined to do but i had now been so long in the company of eugenia for that was the actress's name that i could not very easily part with her in fact i was desperately in love after my fashion and though perhaps i could not with truth say the same of her yet that she was partial to my company was evident i had obtained from her the history of her life which in the following chapter i shall give in her own words End of chapter nine